Well, good evening. Welcome back to our study of the stories in Genesis. Uh, I'm really glad to see that the cold weather here didn't stop you guys. And I notice all of you out there watching digitally, it didn't stop you at all. So way to go. Hey, I'm gonna say a prayer for us and we're gonna dive in. I really like going through these archetypal stories, these foundational stories. And this one in particular is gonna connect to the New Testament really well. So let's say a prayer. Lord, thank you for the blessings you showered upon us. We're grateful that we live in this country. We're grateful, Lord, for the blessings that we have. We pray for the leaders of our nation and the leaders of the world that you would turn their hearts toward peace and, Lord, that you would work through even the worst of humanity to bring about good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here is the number to text your questions during class. And so text questions there. We'll answer as many of them as we can. We have been moving through uh, the book of Genesis. We started in chapter one and with creation, and we looked at the first couple of verses, and we talked about the kind of the bottom line idea is that God sustains his creation. So unlike many of the Mesopotamian or ancient Near Eastern creation myths, this this account of creation doesn't read like a myth. It doesn't want, it doesn't portray itself as a myth. It portrays itself as giving you a rationale for the universe as it is. And the idea of a creator, an intelligent creator, a creator who continues to have a relationship with his creation. He is the sustainer of creation as well. So you get this sense of the involvement it's sort of like a parent-child relationship. It's, they don't tell you this when you have kids, but you never actually stop being a parent. It's not like they graduate, go off, and you no longer have any obligations. You know, as your kids are always your kids. And it's that way with God in a, obviously a much bigger sense, but not only us, but the creation are worthy of and gets his attention and his concern. So God sustains his creation. Then we looked at the creation, the pinnacle of creation in chapter, uh, the end of chapter one and chapter two both have different accounts. Chapter one is kind of overall, chapter two kind of zooms in on humanity. But the idea of Adam and Eve being made in the image of God, but even more than that, made for relationship with God. So humanity is not like in so many, like the evolutionary story, the Darwinian story of humanity. Uh, humanity is random and purposeless. And I don't say that to be critical. I simply say that as a matter of fact, is that humanity is a random result of certain forces without a particular purpose and without any particular obligation one to another and a survival of the fittest idea. Then you get some of the other more, what we call pagan ideas of other civilizations where humanity is created to be basically slaves of the creators, the gods. But with God, it's different. You get humanity created in God's image, bearing in some key sense, the very image of God and created to have a sustained relationship with God. If you remember, 
in the creation story in chapter two, you get Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God. You get this idea of relationship, you get the community. And if you remember, in Genesis 2.25, this whole story ends with this odd sentence, and we covered this in our last lesson, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we talked about the idea of why is that there? It's because the idea of nakedness is a physical representation of a spiritual and emotional reality. You see transparency, you see a lack of fear in the sense that you see security. The idea of nakedness means there's no boundaries, there's no weapons, there's no closed up protection. You just see the idea of transparency and openness. And that's the way we were created to exist with God. So you get this idea of the creation being, as the scripture says, very good. And God creates it as harmonious, creates it in an ordered way, creates it to have a long-term relationship with creation. So as we move into chapter three of Genesis, and the chapter divisions, by the way, are arbitrary, but these are good in that chapter one is creation, chapter two focuses on humanity, chapter three is another episode in the story. So the chapter divisions are good, but as we move into chapter three, we're going to talk about then what happens. You know, as humanity is set up in the Garden of Eden, in this place that God has made, and the Garden of Eden is made for human flourishing and the flourishing of creation. God's very liberal. He says to them, you can eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's not like God says, look, you guys are on a really restricted diet here and you can only eat apples. But it's, it's you, you have the free run of this with very minor boundaries in the garden. So God is a very liberal God. So Adam and Eve have been given, perhaps as a, a part of being created in the image of God, but Adam and Eve have been given free will some kind of free will, some measure of free will. And this is gonna play into some of our discussions and I suspect some of your questions. So let me go ahead and preempt it a little by saying this. Why does God create humanity with the capability of disobeying? Well, the obvious answer to that, and we all know that, if we, just, if we stop and think about it for a minute, you realize that if you don't have the ability to disobey, you don't really have the ability to obey. You may be coerced, but you don't have the will to obey. If you can't reject, you can't love. And so humanity is created in order to be a relational creature. You can't have a relationship if you cannot choose not to have a relationship. That makes sense? And so humanity is created with this, this power, if you will, that God has granted to make choices. And so the story of the fall of humanity is really a story about how Adam and Eve, representative of all humanity, use their free will in order to choose. Choose, as Moses says to the Israelites, uh, later he's going to say, choose this day, life or death, good or evil. In other words, you've been given this power, this ability by God, exercise it, and how will you exercise it? Question? 
Yes, um, a question about creation. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? So the idea of being made in the image of God is something that people, the text says what it says. In other words, you know everything that the text says. So now we're into the realm of trying to draw conclusions, trying to do a little detective work, make some reasoning. Some of them are very easy to do in the sense that you notice, uh, but then again, this is beyond the text a little bit. We're gonna do some reasoning. One thing is, is you, you a lot of people say one of the ideas is the idea of sentience. What makes human beings different than other creatures? Well, some would say language makes us different, but then others would say, well, other, some animals have rudimentary forms of communication. Some people would say, and this is a really good one, is that humans can laugh, and that's not something other creatures can do. That may be true, but I find it not terribly impressive. The idea of thinking about the future, that's probably a really good way to think about sentience, is knowing that you are mortal and anticipating the future. But the idea of sentience, of self-awareness, of having the sense of being and others, there's something about human beings. So is that perhaps it? Another would be the idea of the moral ability to choose good and evil. That's not something that's given to any of the creatures, animals. They act out of, we call, here's how, what we call it, we call it instinct. So when the dog pees on the carpet, you can't really say, well, you can say you're a bad dog, but I just wanna say that morally speaking, that's really not accurate because this is not a moral creature, all right? It's like, oh, I knew it was bad, I just chose to do evil. This is the fall of canine people. No, that's not what's happening here. And so the idea that we are moral people with moral choice, I think one of the great arguments of being created in the image of God is that we are creators. If you think about it in all human civilizations through all of time and you look at it and you see, we create. We like to build, we like to flourish. And so that's a long-winded way of saying that the text doesn't specify what that is. But there are a lot of ways to reason about it. I suppose the final thing, I don't know if it's the only thing, is that we are eternal. And that is we are not meant to, these bodies are meant to die. They weren't for Adam and Eve. We're about to find out why they're gonna die. But we as, as beings live on. We have a soul. There is an eternal element of who we are. So that's a good question. It's a question that doesn't have an easy answer because the text doesn't give us an easy answer. But you get the idea that we are special and we are like God in some key ways. Well, one of the ways is the ability to choose. And so as we go into chapter three, it begins this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, that's deceptive, isn't it? What did God say? You can eat of any tree in the garden except this, but all of these are for you. The serpent, obviously in a deceptive way, changes this, did he really say that? And the woman said, no, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shouldn't eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and eat it, nor shall you touch it, which she said, God didn't, lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. And that's a lie. But this is the idea of deception and the idea of lies. And if you think about Satan, and this is Satan, we'll talk about Satan in, in just a second, a little bit more, but this is Satan. The word Satan means uh, the deceiver and the adversary. And so you get the idea of deception and lying and tempting and misleading. This is the essence of the devil. And that's what's happening here. He said, you will not die. And then he, he, he basically says, God's motives aren't trustworthy. Listen to this, you won't die. God told you that because he knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so this idea of being like God is something that apparently catches the imagination of Adam and Eve, but it has long caught the imagination of Satan. So I wanna go back into the Bible, just a couple of places, and I wanna to talk to you about Satan. So who is Satan? Before the creation of, of Genesis 1, God existed, but so did these, we'll call them spiritual beings. And the reason we call them spiritual beings is simply that they are not temporal earthly beings like we are. They were here before. We call them angels. Messen the word angel just means messenger. So these are the servants and the messengers of God and there is this heavenly host there are all these angels, these beings who are not like us. And so God has these angels and you learn later in the scriptures that there was a rebellion in heaven. This is in the book of Revelation and also in the book of Isaiah, which I'll show you in a section. And so clearly these angels have also have the ability to make a choice and some choose to rebel. And the one that's called Satan, which is a title, not a name, it's, called, it's the deceiver, the adversary, is cast out of God's presence with the angels that rebelled with him. What did Satan rebel over? In the book of Isaiah, you read this. Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. This word in Latin gives us our word Lucifer. So if you've heard of the devil being called Lucifer, it's because when you translate the Hebrew into Latin, the word is Lucifer. And so we get that idea as a reference to Satan. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend, a lot of eye language here, isn't there? Above the heights of the cloud, I will make myself like the most high. But instead, you are brought down to Sheol, the Hebrew concept of hell, you're brought down to hell to the far reaches of the pit. In other words, you've been cast out by God. So what is Satan's sin? What is his rebellion? His rebellion is, I want to be like God. And so what does he say to Eve? It's a kind of, a, if you're a psychologist, you're saying, oh, classic projection. Yeah, he says, you can be like God. 
In fact, in the Jewish literature, Old Testament, what did the Jews think about this? I'm gonna quote from a book that's not in the Old Testament. It's not inspired by God, but the reason that I quote this book is it's widely read in the couple of centuries before Jesus, and it gives you an idea of what Jews thought at that time. How did they understand the scriptures? But listen to this from the wisdom of Solomon. God created man for incorruption. In other words, he created Adam and Eve and they were good and there was no evil and made him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, the devil wants to be God. Oh, devil's another name for Satan. Death entered the world. Do you remember what he said? She said that if we eat of that tree, then we will surely die. Satan lies and says, no, you will not die. And so because of his envy of God, death enters the world. Most of what we think about Satan probably comes from the Middle Ages, Paradise Lost. Uh, it's, you know, just, these are not biblical things. These are just portrayals of Satan. And one of the scenes has Satan saying, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And so it's a rebellion because I want to be God. I want to rule my own kingdom. The Jews had a, a story. This again is not in the Bible, but this is their story about Satan. It's when God created Adam and Eve and breathed life into them in his image and says to all the angels, this is a creature like me and you will serve them that Satan said, I won't serve those miserable little creatures. They're not as powerful as I am and I refuse to serve them. Instead, I will make them serve me. And Satan is cast out and then Satan begins to gobble up the souls of humanity. How? Deception and lies and temptations. So much so that when Jesus comes into the world to reclaim the world for God, he refers to Satan as the ruler of this present world. Well, why is he the ruler? Because he has convinced human beings to also rebel against God. Knowing what Eve doesn't yet know, that means God's gonna cast you out and you're mine. And so you see the story behind what's happening with the serpent and what's happening with Eve. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise and it was buy one, get one, half off. No, I'm just kidding. She took of its fruit and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Here we are again, what is up with the whole nudity thing, right? Why is this back in here? Well, now you understand why this is back in here. What's happened? The man and the woman were naked and they didn't know, they didn't care. It was transparency. What do we have now? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves clothes. What's happening? What's happening now is you have a breach and it's no longer transparency and vulnerability and relational intimacy, which is what the nakedness is really talking about. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, 
I'm transparent and vulnerable and intimate, but I am afraid and I want to cover up. And so the clothes kind of represent fear and shame and relational distance enter the world. This is the first thing you see of the disordering effects of sin. And when I say sin here, what I really don't want you to think so much about sin as a checklist and they just did something wrong on the checklist. I want you to think about sin as fundamentally a rejection of God. It is a rebellion against God. Think, for example, New Testament prodigal son. Prodigal son goes to dad and says, can I get my inheritance early because I just really wanna go party. It is so boring around here. And so did he do anything wrong? Well, yeah, I mean, he was disrespectful effectively. Uh, it, it wasn't something you were supposed to do with the Jews. But I mean, did he lie, steal, cheat? No, he just went and said, look, I, I just don't care that much about you and I'd really like to have the money. And dad says, okay, you can have your share of the inheritance. And so he takes off. What happened there? What happened there was rebellion. It was, I'm turning around and leaving you. That's what happened here, is this event of deciding, I want to be like God, so I will not obey God, I'll do things my way, is fundamentally a rebellion against God, against God's order. And the first thing that happens in that rebellion is a disordering of the vertical relationship with God, which you'll see in a minute, but immediately the horizontal relationship. Because stop and think about this for a minute. So God's not here right now. They realize they're naked. The animals don't care. Who are they hiding from? I mean, have you ever stopped to think about that? It's like, hey, Adam, it's just you and me. Been this way for as long as we've been married. And all of a sudden we ate of this and now we know, oh my gosh, we're naked. Well, the animals don't care. God's not here. They're hiding from each other. You see that what's happening? Why are they clothing each other? We now have distance between each other. And this is a, just a little side note. This is always what sin does. Sin never just affects the relationship with God. It always affects the relationship with other people. You cannot rebel against God without having a subsequent relationship. And what you're gonna see from chapter three on in Genesis, the next couple of lessons we do, what you're going to see is garden, good, intimacy with God, intimacy with each other, rebellion against God, and now what's gonna happen is not really over the next few chapters gonna talk about, oh, how we don't like God anymore. It's gonna be how everything amongst humanity begins to unravel. And I want you to think about it that way. The relationship with God, when that was disordered, the rest, actually the rest of the Bible is about how we can mess up and disorder our relationship with each other, okay? Question before we uh, jump into the, where God shows up and says, hey, what's been going on? Well, I was gone. Yes. Um, why did the devil trick Eve instead of Adam? 
Okay, we're on really dangerous ground here. Uh, why did the devil trick Eve instead of Adam? Okay, well again, you're gonna hear me say this a million times because people don't always say it and I wanna make sure you know. The text doesn't say. So I'm going to go beyond it a little. I'm gonna give you an opinion. And anybody that tells you that is giving you an opinion because you have read the text. My opinion is because if you read this carefully, and not very carefully, I just haven't shown you the whole, all the verses, but God tells Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he can eat of all the rest before the woman is created. So how does she know? Because Adam told her, he said, oh, hey, a new playmate. Hey, I gotta tell you the rules though. We can have anything we want in here, but that tree is off limits, but we can have anything that we want. This is conjecture, but she got it secondhand. Now, she seems to have got it largely right. I'm not critiquing them, but I wonder if, because she didn't hear it from God, she heard it from Adam, if maybe that's an easier person to deceive because she didn't get it firsthand. But that's just conjecture on my part. The text doesn't say, okay? Why the phrase, then the eyes of both were opened? Yes, this, well, we still use this phrase. Why use the phrase, and the eyes of both were opened? That is just a euphemism, we use this euphemism too. And when I say euphemism, I just mean words that don't mean what they say. Were their eyes open? No, their eyes were already open. But we say that too. It's like, hey, well, here's one we say. Wake up, smell the coffee, All right? That, what do we mean by that? Pay attention to what's going on. Uh, we'll just say, open your eyes and look around. We're gonna say, pay attention to what's happening, see things in a different way. So the idea of them opening their eyes is our eyes are the basic way we perceive the world. I realize we have other senses, but we are primarily visual creatures. And so what that basically says, they opened their eyes, means they were already seeing the world, but now all of a sudden, their perception of the world changes. So when it says that opened their eyes, what it meant was it radically changed their perception of everything in, in the world. So that's effectively what that phrase is talking about, is something has changed, not in creation. I mean, if you think about it, tree's still a tree, but something changed in Adam and Eve at this point, and, and an irrevocable line has been crossed you can't go back and say, I'll unrebel against God. So that's it. The whole world changes because of that. Good question. When Lucifer deceives Eve, is that the creation of evil? Good question. So let's talk about evil. Evil is in this text, there are a lot of things that are evil. You can do evil acts, you can, eat, you can have an evil nature, you can have a lot of things, but fundamentally evil here is disobedience to God, rebellion against God. Because what has anybody actually done to this point that you know of? They have basically said to God, you're not God, I am. Well, that's fundamentally untrue, but it has huge implications, doesn't it? And so the idea of evil and then the consequences of that are just cataclysmic for humanity and for all of creation. So did evil get created then? 
that's a matter of more semantics. The ability to choose opened the door for the possibility of evil at the same time it opened the door for the possibility of good. Robots don't do good or evil. They may do useful things or not very useful things. Do you hear what I'm saying? They may do something you like, they may do something you dislike, but it's not evil because they have no choice. It's like the statement you hear is that guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, that's trite and I don't know what your opinion is about that, but I would simply say this, a gun is not a moral agent, but a person is. So evil comes about by exercising our ability, our God-given ability to choose in a way that rebels against God. So I don't know if this is the creation of evil, but this is the introduction of evil and rebellion into the world. Yes, which is probably what the person is asking. So all of a sudden, fear and shame have entered the world. And so they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, think about this. They communed with God. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. You see the theme here. There's now a relational distance with God, not just with Eve. And I hid myself. So what's happened here? He sinned. He was ashamed and he ran and he hid. That is what happens when we sin. We become ashamed, we run, we hide, and pretty quickly he's gonna blame. He says, God says, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And he said, well, that woman you gave me? Okay, this is a low point for mankind, okay? This is, I'll just say right now, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I happened to eat it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said accurately, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So you get this idea of shame and blame, and now you see why the nakedness is a problem. You can't be open with God anymore because now you have sin, secrets, rebellion in your life. And what you're beginning to see and what you're gonna see roll out in the next few verses are the consequences of evil coming into the world, the consequences of that decision. But before we do that, I wanna talk about this idea because you're gonna hear about this if you read any theology. I wanna talk about Adam being the federal head of humanity. And that's just a theological term. It's actually not theological, but the federal head. Sin has entered the world and the effects of sin are going to affect all of us. This is called the idea of original sin. We'll talk a little bit more about it in just a minute because the New Testament has something to say about it. But here's the analogy, and it's an analogy, it's not perfect. But basically you have a senator 
and let's say she goes to Washington and your senator votes on some, lead, and maybe you voted for her, maybe you didn't vote for her, it doesn't really matter, she is going to represent Oklahomans, right? It's the way our government. And she goes to the federal government and she votes for some law, right? You now will be affected by that law. You didn't vote for it, but your representative voted for it, and you then bear the consequences of that. That's not, you, it's not, we don't consider that unfair. That's just the way our government works, right? In fact, we think it's a very good way for a government to work. So I'm not critiquing it. I'm just saying that you already are familiar with this idea. Think about Adam kind of that way. Adam being the first of humanity is in a sense the essential representative of humanity. And so because Adam did this thing and rebelled, the consequences of that are going to flow down to all of Adam and Eve's children. And that's what it means for Adam to be the federal head of humanity. It simply means that we are affected by what he does, just like you are affected by what your senator does in Congress. So hold that thought, we'll come back to that. So what happens now is the idea of you have a breach, and I just wanna pause and talk about what sin does because it, it has not changed. Sin today and you're in my life is exactly the same as this. It is fundamentally a rebellion and a rejection of God. All the sins that are listed in the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't list sins like, okay, as long as you don't do these things, you can do anything else you want. It, those lists are describing what an obedient life looks like. So whatever the sin may be, if it's the sin of hard-heartedness, if it's a sin of selfishness, if it's the sin of greed, if it's whatever sin it may be, it does this same thing. It disorders our relationship with God, it distances us from God, and it disorders our relationship with, with humanity in general. What happens here is that exact thing, and it's exactly what happens to us. So you don't have a rule in the New Testament that says, by the way, if you run across the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat it, okay? That's not in there. You know what the New Testament could have said? Obey what God has told you. Obey God, serve God. The two great commandments, we trivialize these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey what I tell you. And so the idea of loving God means I am yours. I'm gonna follow you, I'm going to obey you. I'm certainly not gonna rebel and say, you know what, I think I know better and I think I'll do things my way. Love your, and there's, here's the other reason, love your neighbor as yourself, why? Because those are the two elements of what rebellion disrupts. It disrupts the vertical and the horizontal relationships. So here's how it disrupted it. So then the Lord God said to the serpent, he said, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the other creatures. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is really interesting. I will put enmity 
between you and the woman, and I don't just mean that women are afraid of snakes, men are afraid of snakes too. What I'm talking about here is between your offspring and her offspring, who is the woman's offspring? Well, all of us, but this is considered to be the first reference to Jesus, called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the very first reference to the idea that there would be a, a descendant of Eve that will deal with the devil. And so I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is talking about the cross. And his head is more than bruised. Satan is thrown down and, and will be destroyed. But this curse says, you will be destroyed and it will come from the very people that you thought you have corrupted. This is the beginning of God's plan of redemption. Then he turns to the woman and he said, and we don't have time to talk about this, but this is fascinating. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Okay, that's not fast, fascinating. Uh, that's why God also uh, created uh, pain meds. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, and this is notoriously difficult to translate in the Hebrew, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And, and depending on, this is the ESV, depending on your translation, it'd be a little different, but you get this idea that you and your husband are not gonna get along that well. In other words, mankind and womankind, something has changed in that relationship. And there's going to be, fundamentally, the one thing that you know this means, no matter how you translate it, is this. You guys are gonna be involved in a power struggle. There's going to be contention between the two. And you go, whoa, that definitely turned out to be true, didn't it? And so you get this, do you see how the horizontal issues, we start fracturing along all kinds of lines. But the very, I mean, think about Genesis 2, 24. And the man shall leave his, when the woman's created, and the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now what's happened is a consequence of this disordering. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And if you, personal opinion here, if you want to look at the history of humanity all the way back to that time, and you have heartburn with the patriarchy, that's what this is talking about. That's my opinion, is I think the fall introduced the power and control struggles. This is not the way it's supposed to be. When you read the New Testament, it talks about roles, of course. Adam and Eve had different roles, if you will. But when it comes to power and who was gonna lord it over whom, you didn't have that. And when you look at the church, what do you see? Jesus said to his disciples, the kings of the, of the Gentiles lord it over one another, but that won't be the case with you, he said. The greatest among you will be your servant. This is a huge disordering of God's creation and God's created intent. Then he turns to Adam, who's standing there sheepishly, thinking maybe he'll forget me, and he said, and this is interesting too, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, buddy, I told you this directly, you shall not eat of it. Listen to this, he doesn't curse humanity. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Gone are the days of 
you know, easy home delivery takeout in the Garden of Eden. Now you will work the ground. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat your bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. And by the way, the word Adam means ground, means earth. And then we get the name of Adam from that. And it, but it basically means you were taken from the earth and to the earth you will return. You know, the old, I don't know if they say this at funerals anymore, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's this kind of an idea is that from which you came, so this body will return. Your soul will not, but this is where your body will return. So work is changed. In the Garden of Eden, people like to get up and go to work. So you can blame Adam and Eve for your boss. You can blame Adam and Eve for having to get up and go to that job you don't like. But work changes. The universe changes. And this is something you don't really think about very much. The ground is cursed because of you. The universe is disordered. Sin didn't just disorder the relationship with God and the relationship with others, but all of creation is now deteriorating. Adam and Eve will die. Those bodies will die. Death entered the world. Since this event, death is the only way out of this world. We will live eternally, but we were not meant to die. We were not meant to deteriorate. This universe was not meant to be that way. I've said this many times before, I know you probably don't appreciate this, but I don't think there were mosquitoes until this point because mosquitoes to me are a sign I can find no use for them whatsoever. And so I think they came about about now. Listen to this passage in Romans. So this is Paul writing in the New Testament. He's talking about us being reconciled to God. But listen, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the children of God, us, who are now through Jesus Christ adopted into the family of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, think decay. All of a sudden creation is disordered and so now you have the law of entropy. You have the whole idea of the shrinking, expanding universe. You, things are running down, the law of entropy, things are running down. Everybody that owns a car knows that. If you don't do anything to it, bad things happen. That's the way the whole universe is now, right? If you don't keep this place up, it's gonna become a dump. So the whole creation was subjected to fidelity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who subjected it? Cursed is the ground because of you. That's where this comes from. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When God redeems us, he redeems the universe. That's why in the book of Revelation, there's a new heavens and a new earth. You see what's happening? It's not enough to say, hey, we got people that are, are good. Let's clean this place up. It's no, you have a brand new heaven and new earth because this one has deteriorated. In other words, it's decayed. And so it's remade, it's redeemed. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we who have the spirit of God grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, 
we were saved. Does this start to make sense? I want you to get a sense of the cosmic nature of what's going on here. This, in Genesis chapter three, so affects your life today. Now you may say, gosh, it's a real bummer that I'm suffering for what Adam did. Well, unfortunately, we all have rebelled against God. It's not like, if, I mean, if you've led a sinless life, I think you can raise your hand and say, God, excuse me, these guys deserve it, but I don't, not fair. But we can't, can we? Because we too have participated in this rebellion. So Genesis goes from there to say this. And so after God pronounces this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Eve probably means uh, living or life. It's, it's not known exactly what that word means. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That's one of the more surprising verses in the Bible. Remember I told you that God loves creation. He's engaged with creation. He sustains creation, the universe, but particularly Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve say, I don't want any part of you. And the consequences of that is they will be expelled from the presence of God. There's been a relational disconnect. And yet, and yet, instead of saying, okay, get out, fend for yourselves. I owe you guys nothing. He clothes them. And you begin to see here the beginning of John 3:16. For God so loved the world. Why? The world rebelled, Adam rebelled, I rebelled, you rebelled against him. Why? Because he does. He so loved the world that he made a way for us to be reconciled, made a way to come home. Does that make sense? You see here that God still loves them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. The Jew, I know you're gonna ask a question about this, so what's God worried about? I'll tell you what the rabbis thought was that evil would then be immortal. So it's a little philosophical, but the idea that God is going to destroy evil and evil is not immortal. Evil is the result of a choice and God is going to find a way to make up for that, to undo that, to restore the harmony. So he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what happens here? They're banished from the presence of God. The garden is God's garden. God walks in the garden. They lived in the garden. They were with him. You can only imagine what they are thinking it's like, I wanted to be like God and now I would give anything to go back where I was. It's like the old song, I think it's a Joni Mitchell song, The Big Yellow Taxi. It's gonna go in, if you know the song, it's gonna be in your head for days, it's my fault. You remember what, he said, what this song says? Uh, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pave, there's a reason this is in it. They pave paradise, put up a parking lot. Uh, see, it's gonna be in your head now. That's, this inspires that idea. And that is, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. It's like, oh my goodness, Satan lied to me. Duh, Jesus said, you're a liar and you're the father of lies. And so by making that choice, now all of a sudden they have lost paradise. If you've ever read Steinbeck's book, East of Eden, picks up on this theme, the idea of banishment. So they are sent out east of Eden. 
into the world and now they begin to make their way and life doesn't change much from then till now, fundamentally. We live in this world. Banishment from God's presence. But the beauty of this is that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I realized, no, nah, Terry, that's way New Testament. We got like 60 books left, you know, in the Old Testament before we can get to the gospel. This is where the gospel starts. It, it's not quite so popular right now to talk about the gospel in this way, but this is the gospel. Usually, and this is true, we wanna talk about the gospel by saying God loves you. That is most definitely true, it is astoundingly true, but it's not the beginning of the gospel. Because if you don't have a problem, the fact that God loves you is icing on your cake. The reality is, God loves you is way bigger news than you think because you have a massive problem that you cannot solve. That problem starts here. In other words, why is, I'm gonna quote Romans, the wrath of God, the, and wrath is a bad word for us, but the righteous anger of God is being revealed, Romans chapter one, against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. What's he talking about? Every sin that's ever happened, every rebellion that's ever happened, he is justifiably distanced from us. We have a major problem, and that is we have lived in this fallen world, in this fallen condition with evil and misery. The inhumanity of man to man is unbelievable. The capacity for evil. We are not more evil than Adam and Eve. We just have technology to do it to more people. You see what I'm saying? We are the same as Adam and Eve. We can just affect a lot more people at the same time. So this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news, because this is the bad news. The gospel is a solution looking for a problem if you think you're fine. The Bible says you're not fine. And anybody with any sense looks around and go, not only are we not fine, this place is not fine. In fact, most of these people I see on TV are crazy. And the point is, yes, welcome to fallen humanity. Welcome to a fallen world. Question? Yes, um, does God making Adam and Eve's clothes from animal skins represent the first killing of animals? Yes, good question. The idea of making clothes from animal skins. Up to this point, I'm gonna tell you what the text says and then I'm gonna tell you what the Jews thought of it. Why am I telling you what the Jews thought of it? Because they were closer, okay? To this. But here's how the Jews through all the centuries understood this. But basically, when they put them in the garden, they're just total vegans. I mean, it's like you can eat of any tree in the garden that you want to. And you don't see them saying, oh, and by the way, rabbit stew is really good. You know, no, you don't see that happening. Adam and Eve are not intended to deteriorate and die. They're, these bodies are not intended to wear out. The warranty is amazing. They voided the warranty though with that sin, but you, basically you don't see that happening. After the fall, you begin to see, and in some of the paintings, by the way, if you're an art person, notice the paintings of the fall. I think the, no, I put a, a fresco on your uh, handout. But a lot of the paintings of, of the expulsion of Adam and Eve will show in the background animals chasing other animals. That didn't happen. 
before uh, this period. So yes, that is the introduction of eating animals, eating meat, of death. Death comes to the animals too from one another and violence enters the world. You're gonna see in our next lesson that violence really enters the world. But there's no violence in the Garden of Eden. I mean, all of these things, I want you to just wrap your head around, wow, that is huge. That rebellion against God disordered everything about creation. So, good question. When the ground began producing weeds and thorns after the curse, did it mean literal weeds, or is that tied to Jesus' reference to weeds in the parables? Yes, good question. Jesus is talking about something different in the weeds in the parables. He's talking about people and he's talking about Satan sowing doubt. If you're thinking about the wheat and the tares, um, the, any of those parables that Jesus is talking about, the idea of weeds, the thorns rising up in the parable of the sower to choke you out, it's really talking less about the physical disordering of creation and more about uh, the spiritual temptations and greed and envy and that kind of thing. So two different two different things. Where's the Garden of Eden today? What happened to it after they were cast out? I believe it was sold to some Chinese investors. Uh, where's the Garden of Eden today? I think I put a map, I didn't talk about it, but on your handout in maybe the first session uh, that just shows some of the places people think it might have been. But based on the description in Genesis chapter one, is basically near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So think, you know, in the uh, Mesopotamian area, think Iraq, you know, the cradle of civilization there. Somewhere in that area is the general thought, but it's not actually known. What did God do with that property after that time period? Wait until lesson after this and we get to the flood and you'll see that it, it got, kind of got caught up in some massive urban renewal project called the flood. Is the root of human conflict the fact that we are competing with one another to be God? That's a good question, and that's calling for an opinion, and is the root of human conflict that we want to be God, or we're competing with each other to be God? I would make it a, uh, yeah, basically, but I'd actually say it a little differently. So I, I get that question. It's a really good question. I would say in the form of a radical self-centeredness. In other words, when Adam and Eve were both naked, it, you have such transparency. And now we're closed up. And we're closed up emotionally, spiritually, physically. I mean, you go home, you drive around back, you go into your garage, you close your door, you go into your house. I mean, it is amazing the implications of this whole thing, if you think about it. But we are very closed up and it's me versus you, not me and you. And it's that radical self-centeredness, which you could argue is effectively me wanting to rule the world. So that's, that's a good way to think about that. Well, what I wanna do is I wanna fast forward for a second to the New Testament. And I want you to understand these verses because the New Testament looks back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You have a good God, creates a good world. He sustains its existence. He creates humanity in his own image. 
humanity takes the God-given gift of free will and rebels, and God still loves us as we live out the consequences of that sin. The consequences are uh, alienation from God. Sometimes people think about sin as uh, distance between God, and that's true. Alienation from God, alienation from one another, and a disordering of all creation. And so you see creation begins to groan. New Testament talks about what Jesus did in this way, and this is really interesting. For as by a man came death, and his name was Adam, by a man, you get Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. So through Adam, everybody dies, but Christ said, I died and now I live. And that is, he has overcome death. In 1 Corinthians 15, a little bit later, he's gonna say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And guess what happened? For all who place their trust in Christ, your sin has been paid for. Death no longer has a hold on you. Colossians is gonna say it this way, that the mortgage, I'm, this is a loose translation, but this is what it's talking about. The mortgage on your soul that the devil has, Colossians says this, Jesus took that warrant, that document, and nailed it to the cross and humiliated Satan by saving you and buying you back. You see what, how all of this ties back to chapter three. So for as in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. And so the idea of Christ is undoing the sin of Adam for all who will place their trust in him, his blood will cover your sins. You, he made a way to be reconciled to God. Some of us are gonna say, I don't wanna be reconciled to God. I want to be God, I still want to be God. That's why Jesus said, the gate to destruction is wide and many go that way and the road to salvation is narrow and few find it. Why do few find it? Is it hidden? Oh, it's definitely not hidden. Christians have been telling people about this for 2000 years. That way is narrow and few find it because very few are willing to get off the throne and say, you know what, I'm not God and I will bow down before God. It's the same idea. Uh, Romans says it this way, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, think rebellion. So death spread to all men, why? Well, because of the effects, but because all sin. None of us can say, not my fault, Adam did it. It's like, he did, and so did you. Yeah, that's true. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, etc., etc. Death reigned, we'll go into that another time. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. But listen to this, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Many died through one man's trespass, one man's sin. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so you get this sense in the New Testament that part of the, you, you don't have a gospel without Genesis 1, 2, 3. Maybe that's the easiest way to say it. If Genesis isn't true, there is no gospel. There is no point to Jesus Christ. If you don't have a sin problem, 
you definitely don't need Jesus Christ. And if you preach a gospel that says, well, I don't have a sin problem, but I'd like Jesus Christ because he'll make my teeth whiter and he'll give me higher ACT scores and you know, he can do all this good stuff for me, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is fixing something that happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Does that make sense? This is essentially the gospel. And that's why the New Testament talks about it that way, is God in his great love not only made clothes for Adam and Eve, but sent his own son to restore that vertical relationship. Ephesians chapter two goes on, and read this, this is great. It basically said, God made us alive in Christ. He restored this relationship and broke down all the walls of hostility between us. You see what happens? That's why in the church, there's so much talk about unity and love for one another. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes, we don't offend one another, but the point is this, we are breaking down the walls of hostility because you cannot, you cannot repair the vertical relationship without it also beginning to repair all the horizontal relationships. That makes sense? When you break the vertical, you really break the horizontal relationships. But when the vertical relationship is restored, then of course the horizontal relationships have to be. Scripture says, you can't say that you love God if you don't love your brother. First John, First John talks about this a ton. He said, any man who says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. Why? Because once you're reconciled with God, you begin to be reconciled. It undoes everything that happens in Genesis. Okay? It's getting a little preachy, but I want you to see the connection. I want you to see what's happening here. Genesis isn't just a bunch of old stories. It is the beginning of the gospel. Without Genesis 3, the New Testament has no meaning whatsoever because you don't have a problem. Make sense? But here's the good news, and this is what I want you to take with you, is the fact that yes, I am Adam. I am Eve. I did the same thing they did. In my life, I took my free will and I chose to rebel against God. And I'm in the same situation they were, and yet Jesus Christ came, died for all of us, and for me to restore that relationship. That's the beauty of the gospel. All of creation sighs, saying, at last, at long last, hope against hope, we can be reconciled to God. Understanding the cosmic nature of this, I hope comes down to us on a Monday through Friday basis and say, you know what? I worry about a lot of stuff, but God, if he can take care of this, he can take care of me. God sustains the universe. He pursued you and me when we had no hope whatsoever. There's nothing that's gonna happen to you and me in our life that he can't overcome. Next time, I hate to say this, I wanted to end on a good note, but we got a lot of bad news, okay? Because once you see sin enter the world, between chapter four and chapter six, I mean, three simple chapters, what can happen? Oh my goodness, the whole place blows up. And we'll talk about that next time. I'll see you guys then.